Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, I have a conversation with Rabbi Joshua LaBelle about the book of Leviticus. Rabbi LaBelle serves at Temple Benai Israel, a reform synagogue in Clearwater, Florida. He recently moved to the Tampa Bay area after serving synagogues in Texas. We had a great conversation about the book of Leviticus and how modern Reformed Jews interpret the sacrifices, laws, and rituals contained in the book. In the interview, the rabbi mentions interpretations that come from Midrash and the Talmud, or from, quote, the rabbis. Both of these are distinct collections of rabbinical interpretations of scripture from the 3rd to 6th centuries AD. The Midrash and the Talmud hold a high place in Jewish tradition as writings second only to the Hebrew Bible itself. As rabbis rose in prominence in Judaism, it was common for a rabbi to have a particular interpretation of a section of scripture and to garner a following based upon his interpretive prowess. Hint, lots of Jesus' sayings in the gospel are Midrash, especially in Matthew. So with that taken care of, let's get into the episode beginning with a summary of this week's readings. The tabernacle has been built, and now God wants to instruct Moses on how to use it chapters 1 through 7. There are five main offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. God tells Moses how to prepare the offering and how to offer it by fire. Once the system is in place, priests need to be consecrated to oversee the offerings, chapters 8 through 10. So God installs Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons as the first priests. Here, we also have the cautionary tale of Nadab and Abihu, two sons who offer an illegal offering to God and get the, quote, Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark treatment. Moving outward beyond the tabernacle, God also instructs Moses and the priests on how to delineate between clean and unclean, chapters 11 through 15. Perhaps the most misunderstood part of Leviticus are these chapters. Was the purpose of this because certain things were considered disgusting, or was it for hygienic purposes? We'll discuss this later in the episode. Leviticus climaxes in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement, a singular ritual that cleanses all the sins of the entire congregation. Upon the head of one scapegoat rests the sins of all the people. This ritual is in the background of the New Testament's understanding of Jesus' life and death. Finally, there is an additional set of law codes, chapters 17 through 27, often referred to as the Holiness Code. This is additional material added on to the end of Leviticus by a later editor, further dealing with life as a community. If we look at the Torah as almost a origin story of the Jewish people, where they are almost reflecting on their journeys, Leviticus centers around the idea of how do we relate to God and to each other, uh, especially from a ritual standpoint, where it's traditionally believed that Leviticus, this is the book of the Kohanim, of the priestly class, and they are instructing the Israelites on how we make that connection uh, to God. What does God expect from us in our day-to-day lives when it comes to how, again, we treat each other and how we interact with the divine presence? Okay, so behavior. Behavior, very important. So where do the animal sacrifices fit into this? Because I feel like early in Leviticus, right, you kind of get hit in the face with we've got bulls and goats and birds and we've got to kill them in some way to sacrifice them to God. Can we talk a little bit about what what is going on there? 
yeah, I mean, it's a really big shift, as you are mentioning, from the narratives that we have in Genesis and in Exodus. We have these great stories about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Joseph. We have the drama, the unfolding drama of the Exodus from Egypt and the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai, these huge moments in Jewish history and in our theology. And then we hit Leviticus 1.1 and we're talking about sacrificing bulls. Uh, right, right. And it's a big disconnect because that's obviously not something that we're doing today. These are things that were happening you know, in the very distant past that we were offering up these animals to God. And it gives us chapter upon chapter of different kinds of animal sacrifices uh, because they're all being utilized for different reasons. And when we think about animal sacrifices – we don't do that anymore. It's been replaced. It's been replaced by prayer. But at that time, prayer hadn't developed yet. And this was a very tangible, very concrete way for the Israelites to show their devotion or express their emotions to God. So, for example, you would have a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of well-being, yeah. that you would sacrifice when things were going well. You wanted to say thank you. You wanted to uh, you know, show your gratitude and appreciation for the blessings God has bestowed upon you, and you would have a sacrifice for that. But more commonly, you would have guilt offerings. For like, I did something wrong. Something wrong. The different yeah. kinds of, you know, of guilt offerings as well, for intentional sin and unintentional sin. Uh, uh, and depending on your status in the community, your wealth, really, that would also determine what you would sacrifice. Because if you were a poorer person, you couldn't necessarily uh, sacrifice an ox that you didn't have. It's fascinating when you look at, and this, we'll see this theme again in Leviticus, the idea of you have to sacrifice something that is important to you. You have to mm -hmm. sacrifice something that you value or else it's not a sacrifice, you know, that they want – you know, a bull or, or, or an ox that cannot be lame, it can't be injured, it can't be wounded. It has to be, for all intensive purposes, uh, without blemish. So this isn't like a white elephant gift. No, You're no like, not exactly, yeah. not at all. God yeah. wants God wants the best that you have to give God within reason. God wants the best, yeah. And we see it in the Cain and Abel narrative as well. You know, the mm -hmm. idea that Cain offers fruits and vegetables, and it says that Abel offers the choicest of his flocks. Right. And the rabbis take that to mean that while Abel gives something from the heart, something of meaning and value, Cain is giving rotten vegetables. Okay. Cain's given the moldy tomato, you know, uh -huh. that he just happened to have because it didn't specify that he gave the best of his harvest. He just gave some fruit, you know, right. whatever it might be. So Leviticus picks up on this idea that the sacrifice, the offering has to be something that is without blemish. It has to be perfect. It has to be something that you would miss. You can relate this almost to today when you're donating to a food pantry, you know, are you going out to Publix and are you buying, you know, new items to donate or are you reaching back into your own pantry and find, finding the expired jar of, of peas, right, you know, right. from 2017 uh, <laughs> that you're going to give as your offering? Is that an offering? No, it's not a sacrifice. It's not a donation because they're going to throw it away. Right, it's leftovers. It's leftovers that, that you yourself wouldn't eat, uh, but you're donating it to a pantry hmm. and the pantry then has to discard it because they can't serve expired food. Right. So it's not really a donation at that point. It's not a sacrifice. So it sounds like even early on in Leviticus, as we're getting into the animals, animal sacrifices uh, throughout the first uh, eight chapters and the offering, or the first seven chapters and the offering of uh, 
of offerings writ large. Some are animals, but some can also be grain offerings, correct? Mm-hmm. Like breads and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's fascinating actually when you read it because it sounds you know the uh, the sacrifices depending on which one it is. Some uh, like in Ola, they're completely burnt up, mm-hmm. so it all just goes up to to the heavens, so to speak. But some of it is leftovers. There are are meats there that are consumed by the priests because the priests don't have any other job. They don't have any source of sustenance, and so they would eat the sacrifices. So when you think about it, you know, as much as we might like a steak, uh, every once in a while you want something a little bit healthier. Maybe you get some carbs in. So you had, you know, these uh, flour sacrifices that are basically pancakes. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're cooked on a griddle. It even says, you know, they're, yeah. cooked, they're cooked up on a griddle uh, and you get a little frankincense on it, whatever. They, you have a little little bit of a sauce maybe. It's like maple syrup and they have pancakes too. Okay. Got a little chicken one day, a little beef the other day. Yeah. So a balanced diet. A balanced the priests, diet. The priests were hitting Not their macros. Vegetables, to be fair, but they were, yeah, but yeah. they're hitting the <laughs> hitting the macros. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I don't mean to be like glib about it. I just think it's I, I love Leviticus because it seems like there's intentionality there. Intention matters, you know, mm-hmm. and order matters. There's a way of doing things. There's a process which would also call ritual. Yeah, you know, there are ways that we do things and ways that when we come to bless, we come to praise, we come to worship God. There's an order of our service. There are things that we do in a certain way, and in that order, there is sacredness. Uh, and Leviticus will drive that point home is that there are intentionalities that matter. And when things are not done the proper way, that can be a problem. Yeah. And in fact, that's going to bring us right into um, Leviticus 10, the story of Nadab and Abihu. We've been doing this law. We've been um, going over offerings, going over the uh, the inauguration of the priests uh, and of the regular offerings. And then we get to the story where the ritual goes wrong. It's actually, I think, one of the most fascinating stories in Leviticus, uh, that these are two of Aaron's sons. And they offer a sacrifice. It says they offer an alien fire, as often the translation, alien fire, which had not been commanded. And so they do this, and all of a sudden they're struck down. You know, th- th- there's the most fires from the heavens. That's yeah. kind of the imagery. And they're struck down and they're killed. And now this is trauma, you know, for the community because we think about Aaron, you know, as the high priest, right? Aaron, who. This is a hereditary title. He's going to pass it down to his sons. And now two right. of his, his sons have been killed uh, for this brazen mm-hmm. act, which upon a first read doesn't look so brazen. You know, like what does it mean to offer an alien fire? And so the rabbis have to look at this text and, and really think about it. What does this mean? You know, and so there's the a traditional interpretation, meaning that you know, they just did the wrong thing. Okay, fine. But that's, you know, a very harsh punishment for maybe stepping out of line. There's an assumption that they were arrogant, that they were insolent in a way that by offering the sacrifice that had not been commanded, they were trying to push the older generation out of the way. And that they were Uh going to assume the leadership. It was a symbolic act for them saying, look at us. You know, we're going to be the ones who are going to be offering the sacrifices in the future. Let's have these two old men, you know, Moses and Aaron, they're going to die and we're the next generation. And then it is as if God says, you think so? Let's see who's going to bury who. And there's also, there's going to be a prohibition later on in this chapter about not offering sacrifices when you are inebriated. Uh, mm. And so there is an idea that perhaps they were drunk. Okay. Uh, and it goes back to the idea that we have to be careful 
with the holy. You know, mm-hmm. there, there is sacred space uh, and there is ritual and there's a way of doing things. And we, and we can't take that lightly. Uh, and they were just, for whatever reason, taking it uh, in such a way that they weren't being serious about it. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing and they paid a very heavy price. Yeah. And I... Uh, that that idea of taking the holy seriously. I think that can then now move us into kind of the the second half of the priestly part, at least of Leviticus, kind of 11 through 16. Sure. So briefly, I mean, tell me a little bit about what you think is going on with this clean and unclean. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating because uh, there are a lot of different things going on. You have first uh, tsara'at, it's the term in Hebrew, uh, which is often translated as leprosy, though it doesn't really appear from the description because uh, you get a lot of description of the symptoms uh, for it to be leprosy. But the idea is you get this skin condition, whatever it might be. And I think, you know, to be fair, we're not supposed to know what it is because it, it's a divine punishment in a way mm. uh, that you're getting this condition and you have to be taken out of the camp for seven days. You have to be in isolation. And uh, the reason why we can guess that it was probably from the divine is because your house can be afflicted with this disease. Interesting. Your property can be afflicted with, with this disease, uh, not only your skin. And so it is certainly a supernatural, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. ailment. And But the question is, okay, fine, so you have this ailment and the priests now serve as doctors as well. So the the person gets uh, identified with this disease, they have to go outside of the camp, and then there's a purification ritual upon their re-entry. And when we look at this text, it's like, okay, what's, why does this happen? It never says why it happens. And it's very clear that it's not about physical uh, impurity as much as it is this ritual and spiritual impurity. Uh, and the, the uh, traditional explanation is that it's for people who gossip and who, who mm. speak ill of other people. And so it's really... I think is an ethical reminder to us, again, to be careful with how we speak, because like a skin disease, it can spread. That's that's a fascinating interpretation. Can you tell me a little bit more for our um – where 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 an interpretation like that would come from? Is that from Midrash? Is that from the Talmud? That's that- from that, that's from Midrash uh, literature okay. and, and you know Talmudic literature. They're going to have those interpretations of the text because again, it's a very interesting um, you know condition. You know, and they, they want to study it and see well what's wrong and why do people get this condition or not? And so they came down with that idea that it's from people with uh, evil speech. Evil speech, gossiping. Gossiping, slander. Yeah. Uh, that a famous example uh, in the text is that Miriam has a moment where she speaks slander uh, about Moses, you know, where there's uh, an incident that they're trying to get through. And then Miriam is stricken with Sarat. Huh. And she has to be separated from the community for seven days. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I think that's a helpful um, way of thinking about interpreting the text and sort of uh, not just ignoring it. But yes. sort of, and not just wrestling with it by just reading it over and over again, but actually reading it, looking at sources, whether they're uh, Protestant or Jewish, to kind of help uh, make sense of the text. And I love that the Talmud and the Midrash is there is something to sort of go, okay, this isn't just leprosy, maybe. You know, this isn't just a skin disease. This might be something more going on here with the play on words and so forth, as you were talking about. Yeah, when we try to find meaning out of these ancient texts to pull different ideas and values that relate to modern life. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy with something like, you know, skin disease and whether the patch is white and the hair growing out of it is yellow. <laughs> right, you know, and right. it, it, it feels very uh, minute uh, and it feels sort of not very important. Important, but there are things that can be drawn out uh, of any section of Torah. Yeah, and 
also, it seems like there's an inner biblical sort of connection there with the story of Miriam and Moses. Is that? Yes. Yeah. There, there are, are moments uh, of, I think, intertextuality where they're trying to show, uh, you know, by hints, by allusions, what could be going on in a difficult text. Yeah. That's really neat. Um, it's really neat. And then with the uh, emissions and the blood, you know, it's the Torah has a very interesting relationship when it comes to blood because that's um, blood is a, a life source. We are using it for worship in one uh, way when we're spattering it upon uh, the altar, you know, the, mm-hmm. the blood is consumed. But, you know, blood was also a source of impurity and a source of danger. And so they wanted blood outside the camp as much as it could be because there was, you know, mystical concerns, you know, pagan concerns about demons being attracted to blood. That okay. blood was the food of the demons. So you didn't want to attract bad mojo to your camp. Uh, so the more that was outside, that was good. But I do think it was honestly fear and just not knowing what that was all about. Yeah. We're going to remove it. You know, yeah. in Hebrew, it's michutz lamachane. We're going to remove it from the camp. They have to go outside the camp and to live. And it's, and it's an isolation, uh, which you know, can strike the modern reader as difficult because when we think about when we aren't feeling well, when we're sick, when we're feeling isolated, we want company. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to be pushed outside, treated like a leper, so to speak. We, we don't want that when we are feeling, you know, sick, when we're feeling sort of wounded. We like to be visited, right? We like to have, you know, conversation, we like to have company to uplift our spirits. And here they're sort of being pushed out and told, you have to wait X number of days before you're allowed back in. And yeah. have to go through a ritual of, of, of a purification before you're allowed back into the camp. Hmm. So there's even order there. There's yeah, there's order, order there. Yeah, there's order because you have to wait a certain amount of days and you're re-examined. And then if you are declared pure, you still have to like wash your clothes again. There's a, there's a ritual to re-enter the camp and if you are declared impure you have to put another mm-hmm. <laughs> seven days outside of the camp talk to me about the day of atonement um yom, yom kippur yom kippur right less less from the standpoint of the text i want to hear a little bit about um what that looks like in the life of a modern jewish community yeah, so yom kippur has its biblical origins uh you know in leviticus mm-hmm. and it's a time for us of self-introspection. It's a time for us uh, for reflection and to seek forgiveness for what we have done wrong during the year. Um, we are commanded to the month prior uh, to Yom Kippur to do an accounting you know, of our soul. We're supposed to sort of look back upon the year and think about what we've done in, in our lives. Maybe if we had a second chance, if we had a do-over, that we would do differently, whether it's specific acts or how we have behaved more generally towards other people. Have we responded too often with anger, you know, with hurtful words? Uh, have there been times when we have behaved ethically? Have we been too mm-hmm. loose-lipped when it comes to, uh, you know, people's trust. And so we need to reflect on it and really think what we have done wrong and how we can be better. Uh, So it's a time for us of spiritual and emotional uh, uplift in a way, you know, even though it's a somber holiday uh, because it's a reflective holiday, it's solemn, it's, it's our holiest day of the year. But Within that, uh, in my view and in others' view uh, as well, it's also a very happy holiday in its way because we know from our tradition that God forgives. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and that God doesn't expect perfection from us. You know, or else we wouldn't need a Yom Kippur. You know, we, right. we, we know we're going to make mistakes. Uh, we know that we are allowed to, to make mistakes and we're going to strive to be better. But if we fall short, you know, we have a forgiving and merciful God who, as long as we make the efforts to try to be better, is going to accept our repentance and love and in mercy. That is in the text of Leviticus 16, but not explicitly. No, not explicitly. It's right. a day of self-affliction yeah. that we get in Leviticus, which we have taken to mean fasting. Okay. Um, there's an idea in Leviticus um, in Yom, when it comes to Yom Kippur that it's a day of you know, abstention from things that are pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And so we get fasting, we get affliction. Uh, it is almost as if we are preparing for death. Uh, so in the day was to really do nothing that is pleasurable, nothing that you know is really life affirming, because it's really at the end of the day when we're brought back uh, to life. It's almost mm-hmm. like we have to be prepared that like this might be the end, uh, you know, that we are are shrouded in white because when Jews are are buried, traditionally speaking, we wear a white uh, robe, you know, a, right, a white shroud when we die, okay. and on Yom Kippur we're supposed to dress up in all white. It's like a preparation almost, you know, for death. Mm-hmm. But we know, you know, that we're going to be, again, as long as we make the effort forgiven from our, our sins. Uh, and so we can go forth unto life, as we might say. So what's in the Holiness Code? What What's going on in there? The Holiness Code is probably the most oft-quoted section of Leviticus uh, because it has that very famous verse of uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's a really a, a very interesting part of Leviticus because before this we had mentioned we have animal sacrifices, we have skin disease, we have other things going on that are a little bit less relatable. But in the Holiness Code, it focuses a lot on ethics uh, mm. and how we treat each other. And so it begins with, of course, the big, you shall be holy for I, your God, am holy. But what does that mean? Okay, We, right. have, we have this very daunting command uh, to try to be like God in some way. Uh, and how do we do it? It's through our ethics. It's how we treat each other. We have some ritual in there about, you know, uh, honoring the Sabbath, about um, – you know, how we glean the fields and which is is ethical because of it has to do with charity and tithing mm-hmm. but a lot of it is about how we treat you know individuals about how we treat our parents I mean, loving our neighbor not bearing grudges uh not lying not uh, uh not being unfair when it comes to our business practices not oppressing the stranger comes later you know in the holiness code and so it's a lot of ethical and moral laws that have to do with how we treat our fellow person how do you become a good neighbor, you know, because mm-hmm. you have if to love your neighbor as yourself, you know, is you got to get along. Right. You, you have know. to have an empathy. You have to you understand have to what empathy. neighborhood You have is. to understand neighborhood. You have to understand community. That yeah. if, if, if my tent, you know, is one foot on your property, you know, it, it, is that a violation? You know, yes, you know, it is because I have my own space. I have my own sense of, of um autonomy in a way, my own my own individuality, but we have to function together as a community. Mm-hmm. And so how do we strike that balance? Well, I'm going to bring this to a close. Uh, Rabbi, I'm curious if there's anything else that you want to include or add about the book of Leviticus. I have to say, I am shocked that we didn't touch the Kashrut laws. 
The what laws? The kosher laws. Oh, the kosher laws. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I feel that's usually the first thing I get out oh, of Leviticus okay. is about what we can eat and what we can't eat. Uh, and, and since all of those laws happen uh, in Leviticus about you know the clean and unclean animals, uh, mm-hmm. that, that's that's usually what people go towards. When you know, because one of the defining characteristics often attributed to Jewish people is our diet. Oh, okay. You know, uh, and, and though it does not necessarily hold. Certainly that if you are uh, Jewish, you're not eating uh, pork and shellfish, you know, but that's, I think, uh, sometimes a common stereotype that people might have uh, that Jewish people don't eat certain foods. And that comes from Leviticus. That's really interesting because I assumed as a um, liberal synagogue that you guys just weren't you guys didn't worry about kosher. It depends on the individual because that, that's a, a great point. Okay. Whereas the Orthodox for them, uh, because they believe that it's all. Uh, 100% uh, given from God to Moses on Mount Sinai and forever unchanging, Mm. you know, those laws that are in Leviticus need to be done to the letter. Uh, Whereas in the reform movement with the idea of it being a progressive tradition and uh, the belief that this has developed over time, the uh, the kosher laws have a less central uh, place in our religious practice. But it is something that gets discussed uh, culturally. Interesting. Yeah. So do you hold kosher? I uh, have my own form of kashrut, part of being a liberal, progressive, uh, reform yes. Jew. Uh, we can do it a little bit differently. And so I do not eat you know, pork or shellfish, or I, and I do not mix uh, milk and meat together. But I will go to a restaurant that is not considered to be a kosher restaurant and have a meal, where if you are in an orthodox tradition, you wouldn't do that. Right. And so you know, the example I always give is that like, I can go to uh, a steakhouse, for example example and you know order a steak and i can eat it there i'll just make sure that i don't put any butter on the steak oh wow i don't know how you have steak without butter on it that's I like know, you see? wow the sacrifices we yes. make going back to the very beginning of leviticus we have to sacrifice things that are important to us but i think at the end of the day it comes down to community it comes down to uh the biblical idea in a way of separation of saying that what you eat matters but who you eat with also matters. Uh, and so it's almost a way to self-contain a community if you can't eat with other people. And I think that's a hardship, you know, to be honest, that if, you know, if you can't eat with somebody, how are you going to form a relationship with them? Mm-hmm. So in the more liberal progressive movements, I think we've done away with that idea. And we might find our own ways around, you know, um, you know thinking about how we eat, uh, and and how we value sort of the things that we put into our bodies, but you know we don't want to see it as exclusionary uh, for many of us in the same way. Right. Uh, because if we want to have community with people, part of it is breaking bread. Well, that does it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I was fascinated by the ways Rabbi Labelle and the liberal Jewish community have reinterpreted and reimagined the ancient laws and rituals of Leviticus for their modern context. In many ways, it is similar to how Christians struggle with making sense of the household codes in the New Testament. In both cases, there is a deeper purpose and meaning to the text than the literal words on the page. And I appreciate how Rabbi LaBelle showed us his interpretive tradition for Leviticus. If you want to share insights with us from this episode, join the Facebook discussion group. Search for The Bible Project 2020 on Facebook and request to join. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.